Hello and welcome to the Vaccine Challenge. Our mission is to speed up the distribution of the COVID-19 vaccine by bringing to light all of the supply chain and distribution challenges involved with this mega task and by connecting the various stakeholders that can benefit from working together. I'm Priyanka and today I'm in conversation with Craig Fuller, CEO of FreightWaves. FreightWaves started in 2016 and the best way for me to describe FreightWaves is that it's brought the logistics and supply chain reporting to the 21st century. For an industry that's relied heavily on traditional reporting, FreightWaves ingests a data-driven and analytics approach into how they talk about the $9.6 trillion global logistics industry. It's definitely been my go-to source to keep on top of trends. And today I'll be asking Craig about how the cold chain infrastructure in the US, what the impact of vaccine distribution has been on it, and how this pandemic will shape the future of logistics. All this and more, so let's jump right in. Hi there, Craig. It's so lovely to be speaking with you. It's been a while. For the uninitiated, could you introduce yourself and FreightWaves? Yeah, Priya, I'm uh, Craig Fulham, the founder and CEO of FreightWaves. So FreightWaves is the largest provider information, news, and analytics in the freight market. So we're not involved in matching freight, so we don't handle physical shipments, but we're provide, uh, we provide data and news and information to help companies that are in the business make more money and help them make critical business decisions. Lovely, thank you very much. So there's obviously a lot of scope and different industries that use freight and freight services. The scope of this conversation specifically is around cold chain for the most part, because that's what the COVID-19 vaccines rely on. But before we can talk about vaccine distribution or anything, could you give us a lay of the land of what the cold chain network in the US looks like? What does the capacity look like? Who are the key players? What kind of commodities rely on it to move? And is the network that's required to move various vaccines different or special in any way compared to what already exists? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, it's interesting because logistics and supply chain gained a ton of interest and broad awareness uh, during the COVID, the early days of the crisis, during the quarantine, and uh, certainly during the vaccine, sort of the, the climatic moment of awareness and interest around supply chain. I remember uh, in the early days of the crisis, uh, people were all of a sudden interested and aware of what was happening uh, because it was impacting their personal lives. So toilet paper was out, meats were out, personal protective equipment like hand sanitizer and uh, hand wipes were not available. And so it was an interesting time because it's been this evolution. But one of the things that's become really, really hot as a subsector of supply chain is this concept of uh, cold chain. So really, if you think about what cold chain means, it's, it's how do you protect the temperature of the product that's being uh, moved through the global supply chain. So in trucking, it's temperature controlled trailers or reefers, as we like to call them. In the ocean market, it's containers that have refrigerated units on them. In warehouses, it's warehouses that uh, have refrigeration or freezing units. Um, and so there's this need to maintain temperature uh, integrity uh, throughout the process of moving those physical goods uh, to the ultimate recipient. And so that's really what this concept of cold chain is all about. 
And it got a lot of attention during the vaccine, the pre-run-up of the vaccine and the vaccine rollout, because the vaccines themselves had to maintain a certain temperature range, could not exceed it uh, because these were deep freeze vaccines. Uh, they had to be below a certain temperature and it had to maintain that temperature up until the last couple of hours where it was distributed into someone's arm. And for those reasons, uh, cold chain got a ton of attention. What was really interesting about that is if you listen to the broader media business, there was a report in Reuters and, and other mainstream business media uh, outlets that talked about the lack of capacity or the inability of the supply chain to be able to handle all of the demand for vaccine rollouts. And that actually didn't, wasn't the issue. The issue that we saw here in the United States had very little to do with the capacity of moving the vaccines through the supply chain. And the issues that we saw were all at the final, what I call the final inch. It was really how the states were distributing the vaccines to the ultimate medical professional that was just was effectively putting it in the arms of people. And it, it was just that there was, that's where the issues were. It wasn't in the cold chain. The cold chain actually had plenty of capacity and had the ability to flex uh, to add additional capacity through technologies uh, like containerized uh, refrigeration units that go into a container, into a trailer or onto a plane, um, along with dry ice. They were able to maintain those temperatures. Uh, so we didn't see a significant capacity shortage because of the vaccine. Oh, interesting. So would it be accurate to say that there were no commodities necessarily that were impacted because the vaccine was now suddenly taking up, you know, the space where it would have otherwise moved in a non-COVID world? I, I don't have any data that suggests or any indication, even circumstantial or anecdotal information that suggests that the vaccine distribution calls significant capacity shortages across the global supply chain. And this is sort of astounding when you look at the data, which we, we, di we dove into when we were uh, doing some reporting of this, is that the amount, if you think about how much, how big a vaccine is and how many people are consuming the vaccine, and the cadence of the rollout was measured in months, not days, the amount of demand it put on the, the shipment and the logistics of shipping the vaccines from, you know, I believe it was early December to today, just there wasn't, the vaccines don't take up enough space throughout relative to the overall capacity in the market to dramatically impact the overall uh, uh, supply chain. So it wasn't a situation where uh, we saw significant amount of, of demand that outstrapped uh, this capacity in the market that caused significant shortages uh, in the overall supply chain. And so one of the things that we, we were able to determine is that at sort of peak capacity, we were looking at about 30 trucks a day coming from the, the vaccine manufacturers or the place where they were manufactured. And if you put, think about 30 refrigerated okay. trucks and you compare that to the, and this is in, you're talking about US only, you compare that to the total amount of refrigerated trucks that are in the US market, we're talking about less than 0.1% or so, so a very small 10 basis points of the overall capacity in the market. It just wasn't significant 
I think the media blew it way out of proportion because like most things, people don't understand or think about supply chain. And when they start hearing about this massive rollout for the people that were in the medical community and the people that were managing that rollout and even government officials, it was a really big project for them. But relative to the overall capacity in the market, it's very insignificant. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's just like pocket change for the number of reefers that are needed to just move like Coke bottles or something alone. So that makes perfect sense. I mean, a single um, Walmart, this is sort of perspective pre, is a single Walmart distribution center that does a grocery distribution center in the Walmart and Walmart supply chain will see or would have seen more truck traffic in and out of that facility in a day at one facility than what we saw in the entire vaccine distribution on those days. And so it's, it's, it is astounding to me how much attention was paid to that versus the reality was quite different. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And just that comparison or that perspective obviously helps understand how little capacity itself is needed to move something that's actually that small, even if it's large in numbers. Now, given that you've got, you know, your year to the ground on latest supply chain developments, are there any particular companies or initiatives you want to highlight that are playing a key role in vaccine distribution? Now, obviously, you've mentioned, you know, that the cold chain requirements itself were not that difficult or anything like that. So the UPS and DHLs of the world, obvious in the role that they play. But are there any other companies that stood out? I mean, there was, a, I, I think, like most things in COVID and supply chain logistics, is the in, this is an orchestration of many, many parties. And while the single air, the FedEx aircraft that took off, and I watched that on CNN when it took off, and I felt like this was the D-Day when the, <laughs> I believe it was the Pfizer vaccine had first gotten approved, and it was sort of the first time. And CNN had, you know, was, was the cameras were following the trucks as they left the the manufacturing plant to the airport where it was taken off in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I remember thinking this is like our D-Day, our generation's D-Day, but it was the logistics professionals that were on the front line. It wasn't the military. It was, it was people in the private sector that were, were doing this work. And in order to execute the vaccine distribution or the production of vaccines, is there are so many different parties that are involved in it. So let's put the government aside because the government played an enormously important role. Uh, even if we can did a report card on the government, the US government or other governments across the world, gave them a report card on how well they did in COVID, most governments would get a very low score. But one of the things that I think is miraculous about, about the vaccine itself was that the government was largely responsible for creating the amount of funding uh, to accelerate and basically through their old compliance uh, uh, requirements out the window and fast track the vaccine. So I think the government gets a very high grade as it relates to vaccine distribution, uh, unlike most things that were related to COVID. Having said that, the government was only one piece of the overall party. Uh, the parties that included the parcel companies like FedEx, UPS, DHL, and even the Postal Service had some uh, element of this. Uh, all of those parties were, were sort of instrumental in the distribution, but you have to think about all of the upstream parties that were also involved. You had people that were producing the, the vials. You had organizations that were pr producing in the cold chain, uh, providing dry ice. You had the 
uh, temperature controlled containerized units that go sort of containers inside of containers. They were sort of these, these refrigeration units that were on wheels. They were, you know, essentially palletized refrigeration units mm -hmm. uh, that maintained the temperature integrity throughout the process. You had companies in visibility and tracking that were providing information on the status of not only the, the raw product that went into vaccines, but the visibility and tracing of that of the vaccines as it was being distributed. You had companies that had developed uh, sensor technology, uh, which uh, was put into the packaging that would monitor the integrity of the vaccines as they were moving through the cold chain. So they were basically there to verify and provide uh, assurance of whether the vaccine had been A, tampered with, B, uh, had been somehow damaged, and, and C, and perhaps more importantly, the temperature had, had been maintained throughout the entire shipping process. And so you had warehouses that were involved in it. And then you had retailers like Walgreens in the US and uh, the, the grocers and Walmarts and, and, and organizations that uh, played a really important part in providing that last inch uh, of distribution. So it was, a, it was a fascinating project with a lot of different parties uh, that were involved in it. But this is the thing about supply chain is our industry does this every single day is there's coordination happening every single day across every major or even minor project that takes place. It's just that we as consumers or as humans, we're so uh, focused on the vaccine rollout because this literally meant life or death that it brought a lot of attention to this particular event yep. that I think highlights what's great about logistics overall. Yeah, that's true. The fact that there's milk on shelves every day for years now is is representative of how crucial logistics is. And I think you make a really important point about financial risk that the government had to take in order in order to make this possible. I was actually speaking to Carlo from Operation Warp Speed. He was talking about how even before the vaccines were approved, when they were still in clinical trials, the manufacturing had kicked off, not knowing whether they would be approved or not, fully prepared to not use them and essentially uh, have them go for waste, which I guess is something that no single private company is going to be able to do. That's why the government steps in. So that was fascinating. What do you think are the three biggest bottlenecks then? But broadly, there wasn't a lot of logistical operational challenges where the issues that you had in vaccine distribution happened to do with the states and the, and the lack of coordination at the state level and the lack of preparation, frankly, at the state level is one of the things that I think uh, you, you could give the government a poor grade on is the fact that they did not manage the distribution and they followed a model that's more commonly seen in FEMA disaster relief projects where the government, the federal government plays a role of essential, uh, essentially an insurance company where they fund the money into the states and the states are responsible for executing. So if it's a hurricane, mm. the state of Louisiana, or the state of Florida, the state of Virginia is responsible for uh, managing the distribution of bottled water, uh, MR, you know, food, all the supplies that people need. It's up to really the states to execute that, not the federal government. They did, they copied that model in the vaccine rollout and while some states are better than others at handling disasters, I think Florida deservedly got a poor grade uh, on how they were 
dealing with the quarantine issues or, or uh, uh, COVID and the early phases of it, uh, I think they got a really high grade in the vaccine distribution, but in fairness, Florida has one of the best and most prepared disaster uh, uh, programs in the entire country. They're very prepared for these types of things, whereas right. other states were not. And so the issues were really between coordination of the federal government and the state and how do you allocate these vaccines? And frankly, some of the ridiculous rules they put on who gets access to them and when they should, mm -hmm. uh, people were being turned down for vaccines that were perfectly healthy uh, because they didn't meet the, the, you know, the cohort that was being uh, offered those vaccines. And meanwhile, the vaccines were going, in some cases, going un unused and being okay. destroyed. Well, that doesn't make any sense. I think there was just a lot of failure in that process. Right. What about rural versus urban, though? There's, you know, there's been a lot about how it's just really difficult to access rural America. Do you think that that's, again, exaggerated what you would see on a normal basis or a daily basis? Well, I, I mean, I live in what you would classify as rural America. Uh, so I live in Chattanooga, Tennessee, which is an urban center, metropolitan area. It's a mid-sized city. It's not big. It's not huge. It's not small. Uh, but I live away from the city. I live about 20 minutes outside the city. And so I live in a rural area. You know, there's like very few people near me and near my house. Right. And I went to a, a rural part of the state to get my vaccine. Uh, they were very prepared and, and able to handle it. The problem is that fewer people in that part of the country wanted a vaccine period. And so what mm. was happening was just an awareness and an education that was lacking uh, because people in that part of the country did not see the need or were cynical or skeptical about the vaccine itself, which was a huge disservice because they may not had as high quality um, medical resources as you see in the bigger cities but yet we're so uneducated or misinformed about the vaccine that they weren't taking advantage of, of an excess amount of supply. And so what I told people that uh, would ask, would conversation come up about vaccines, how do you get it? Is in the cities, we found it was difficult to get access to get an appointment uh, in the cities because there just wasn't enough supply. But if you went 20 minutes outside of town, you could easily get one same day. And that was just because people in those rural communities didn't want them. And the way that they, again, this is sort of a failure at the federal government, the way they were, and state government, the way they were allocating these vaccines were based on population distribution. Well, in big cities, you have people who want the vaccines more than people in rural areas, but the rural areas were in some cases destroying their allotment of vaccine because people weren't taking it. And meanwhile, in the cities, uh, they were under allocated and didn't have enough uh, capacity to handle uh, people that wanted it. Wow, that's nuts. Um, so it sounds obviously like the supply chain itself is okay for the vaccines. The trouble or the issue is actually, you know, in the last mile or actually in the health centers where it comes to the actual inoculations. So let's zoom out then talk a little bit about what the impact of the pandemic itself has been on logistics and supply chain overall. I mean, it's been a huge tailwind for the industry. And I think it, what it's done is it's put a spotlight on the need for uh, sophisticated supply chains. And so what, you, what we've seen and the data that we have and others have 
it was a, a really big discrepancy between what I would call high volume, efficient data centric supply chains, typically found in, in high volume shippers that are in retail or consumer packaged goods that is moving a lot of product, consistent SKUs, consistent blended products through their networks um, are doing exceptionally well in terms of volumes uh, and demand. And then you see another part of the overall supply chain or overall part of the economy, which hasn't done as well. And those are typically what I would call less robust or less sophisticated supply chains. And there is a clear discrepancy in the market between companies that can respond to the demand and have the logistics sophistication to respond to that and companies that don't. And so you've seen this in public earnings where companies that were able to evolve their business model, maybe they weren't big in uh, doing retail delivery to homes or on-demand delivery to homes. Uh, maybe they weren't big at that prior to uh, the quarantine and COVID. They become really big at that. I mean, one of the best examples uh, is two really good examples in the restaurant services. One is Panera Bread and the other is the name just uh, Chipotle. Thank you. Uh, those two companies were handled a relatively small percent of their business uh, on an on-demand basis now are, are handling a lot, you know, as much as a third of their businesses on an on-demand basis wow. or delivery basis. And so we've seen this migration where companies have built much more robust uh, delivery models uh, than what they did before. And, and you look at in the retail market, you saw Target had a substantial quarter or has had a couple of really substantial quarters. And that's all related to the fact that they have really built out this and were making, they were already making these investments for, you know, curbside pickup uh, and delivery well before the crisis, but were able to capitalize on it during the crisis. Oh, very interesting. Do you think that there's going to be any lasting changes within the logistics world as a result of the pandemic well after all of this is behind us? Oh, for sure. I, we're not going back. I mean, people are still going to want grocery delivery at their home where they may not have taken advantage of. I mean, if you live in New York, you probably have been getting grocery delivery or you live in London, you probably didn't get any grocery delivery for years. But where I lived, it was a new concept. My wife and I would order, you know, we had a membership with shipped. We had a membership with Instacart, but we may have used it once a month um, when we just didn't feel like going to the store. It's now we're using this daily. And I don't think we'll ever go back to that. Restaurant delivery was a big thing. Um, even things like packaging, which people don't think a lot about is the tamper-proof packaging. Uh, you start to see a lot of restaurants uh, uh, start to develop ways of, of giving the customer comfort that their food has not been manipulated or somebody, you know, the driver wasn't eating it on the ride home or sampling it. And so those are things that I think we're seeing companies make significant investments in is how do they in ensure that the product is maintained all the way, even if they're not the delivery vehicle, all the way to, into the side of the consumer's hands. And so those are, are certain certainly things that we will enjoy indefinitely uh, that have completely changed. And, and then I also think more as a supply chain professional, I think visibility and track and trace uh, and having uh, chain of custody information is going to become far more important in the future. And it's going to be table stakes for companies. I don't think they can get away with not having the, that anymore. And what we've seen in the post, uh, 
you know, if we try to look at the in, inning gain or the inning uh, of the quarantine, which is where we're at right now, we're still seeing companies struggle with lack of inventory, lack of visibility uh, of where the products are and, and not being able to give customers cons uh, an understanding of when those products will be delivered. And so this is all going to change. There's going to be a lot more investment made in supply chain. And I think companies now recognize the need to have a robust supply chain. And frankly, the longer that these disruptions take place in the industry, the better it off, the better off the industry is, is long term, longer term because people will make investments in that. Absolutely. FreightWaves obviously does excellent reporting. And I say that as a regular consumer of the news you guys put out, it's extremely data packed, right? I want to know in the last year, since the lockdown, say up until now, what are maybe two or three or four interesting, surprising insights that you guys came across that you yourself had to do a double take, you know, to be like, wait, is this really right? Yeah, I think, so it's interesting because in late February, we started, our first COVID story was in late, it was in mid-January and we were reporting on it. And then late February, we realized that the U.S. was going to be impacted by COVID. So we started writing a lot about it and looking at how the impact of contain the shutdown of China and what that would mean for uh, domestic uh, transportation flows. And then as, as the month of February went on, we realized that the US freight market or the US economy and the US, the health of the population that was, COVID was coming to the United States, whether we liked it or not. And I remember we got a lot of hate mail. And in fact, we had competitive sites that were basically talking about us being hyperbolic. and. But the data was very clear that what had happened in China and what had happened in Europe was going to come to the United States. It was just no way to offend it. And we started to see it in the supply chain demand data and the volume data. We saw products and freight demand really pick up in early March and accelerate to uh, really March 22nd, 23rd, when the US effectively had everything had shut down, but there was still this massive amount of demand. And we were seeing all that take place in the data. One of the most, I think, controversial calls that we made last year was on mid-April, where we described and made a prediction that the freight market was going to have an aggressive V-shaped recovery. And we, we came to that conclusion by looking at the fact that the, the charts had bottomed out that there wasn't any more deceleration in, in volume that effectively we'd hit the bottom. Mm -hmm. And every state and municipality that was shut down had been shut down. And there was discussion about states reopening. And we realized this has to be the bottom. And it hadn't dropped off. It was still 80% of what it was before in terms of freight movement. It hadn't dropped off significantly to the point where it was zero and all the economic news and unemployment was talking about the economy and how bad it was. And we're like, this is, this is as bad as it's going to get. And it's going to get great from here on out because people are now have shift their uh, consumption cycles and, and are, are going to want physical goods. And so we made this call and we were getting lots of hate mail and people thought we were nuts. And there was a big disagreement internally about it because even some of our analysts didn't believe it. And it's like, no, this is happening. And we were right. It turned out to be correct. The data told us we were correct. Uh, but there was still a large level of disbelief about how aggressive mm -hmm. the market would return. 
And we realized over the next couple of weeks and, and, and frankly, over the next couple of months is that the economy was, was the freight economy was really accelerating. Uh, we were making these calls throughout the second quarter and, and have continued to make them. And there were a lot of people that just didn't believe it. They wanted it. They believed that the market was much worse off. They believed that the government data was the right source of truth. Uh, when in reality, the government data was so had was built on a, on a model that you know was years, if not decades old, and it didn't account for this change in the consumer behavior and how consumers uh, buy products and how they consume them. And so that, that I think was probably the most remarkable thing that we saw. That's amazing. It's uh, also such a once in a lifetime thing um, to have to predict to right and then to actually get it right sounds absolutely fascinating what about technology we you know every time we get together we talk about new technologies that are coming up in supply chain i want to hear a little bit about you know what kind of companies do you think are going to a passively benefit from what happened because of the pandemic and then equally are there any existing companies that have seen um you know shoot up or their importance just shoot up because of what's happened. Maybe, you, you know, if you want to mention names of specific companies, that, that's fine, but even categories would be great. I, I don't think you have to even mention specific companies because I think anybody that's in tech enabled or technology broadly, so tech enabled usually means a company that does, is a physical participant in the market, but, but uses technology to drive that. So digital brokers are really tech enabled services. They're not exclusively apps that deliver freight or match freight. There's a whole set of human uh, experiences behind it, but anything that's tech enabled is doing exceptionally well. And anything that's, that's digital native that had before the crisis re reached some level of product market fit, those businesses are as a class becoming very valuable. Um, and so you see a lot of venture capital investing pour into supply chain technology and freight technology at levels that we've never seen before because they all now are aware at how broken all of this stuff is. Um, and supply chain largely is broken, but it always has been. I think pretty, the thing that people don't necessarily understand is what we have seen play out in the last couple of months, whether it's COVID and what happened with COVID or whether what happened with the Suez Canal and shutting off the canal those things are the Texas power crisis. Those things have always been a factor in logistics professionals have always been dealing with these types of issues. Not, not necessarily at the scale that they are and not necessarily back to back, but we've had hurricanes, we've had earthquakes, we've had Brexit, we've had Donald Trump's tweets. These things have always <laughs> impacted how supply chains operate. The problem is most Americans and most people globally never thought a thing about it. Because the resilience, the amount of inventory that was there, the forgivability of the supply chain uh, was, was always able to be very elastic. It wasn't stretched the way it is right now. But what's happened is we've revealed how many warts and holes and how broken the global supply chain really is. And when it gets stretched, how broken it can become. And for those reasons, companies that provide information technology, visibility, track and trace data are doing exceptionally well right now. And it's, and it's not just one company. I talked to a lot of founders like myself. I run a, a venture-backed company uh, that is in that category. So, of course, I, 
I think, and as founders, we always think it's our business that's doing really well. And that's not necessarily true. I talked to a lot of founders that are in this space. They're all doing very well right now. They all think it's them and their products. In reality, it's all of us. We are benefiting from this massive tailwind right. in supply chain technology where people want information. They want robustness. And now they realize that a customer experience, uh, when we're talking e-commerce or in retail, happens not just what's on screen at the time you buy the product, but what that experience is after the, after the fact. So if you, I've ordered, pro, my wife and I are redoing our house, did an addition to our house and I ordered, I decided to put a summer kitchen in and I ordered this, these, uh, this cabinetry. Uh, I ordered it in February and the website said it would be in next week or two weeks out. And I get an email from them every single week telling me that it will, it's going out this week. And they're like, mm -hmm. it's been delayed. It will come out this week, every week. <laughs> and it's a, it's become a joke because it's been three months and they still don't know where my product is. And when, when I reach out to customer service, they're like, well, everything's backed up and we, we don't know when we're going to receive. It's like, that isn't, that's not acceptable anymore. Yeah. They believe it's acceptable because they've never handled this level of volume and this level of stress in their operations. Right. But I know how the market works and they should have had better visibility of their products than they've ever had. And they don't have that because they didn't make those investments. It's a yeah. big company too. It's not a small mom and shop. It's one that, that is huge. And so having said all that, they, their supply chain is broken and they, they did not, there are technologies that could be in place that can help them figure out where all the stuff is, but they obviously didn't make those investments, which hopefully they will. Absolutely. Well, speaking about unforeseen incidents, talk to me a little bit about uh, what the conversation was at Freight Waves when the whole Suez Canal container ship incident happened. Yeah, look, I, I think we don't take ourselves very serious. I mean, it was a big deal. It, it drove a ton of traffic and interest. It was one of our biggest uh, stories of the year. And we were providing a lot of information about what was happening, but we also, it's sort of comical. Yes, it's a crisis. And yes, I get the fact that it shuts things down, but we also as an industry can't take ourselves overly serious. I mean, the fact is a boat shut down 12, one ship has shut down 12% of global trade. That's, that is, that's, you know, that's a big story. Uh, it's one that creates a lot of crisis. But it's also there's the memes on it, the public interest, uh, you know, the, the late night talk shows, there's some <laughs> really funny and amusing elements to this story that I think we got to enjoy because we don't take ourselves so serious. And so, um, but for us, that was just one more thing to be dealing with uh, in this industry. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like, I hate to admit, I think I spent way more time on uh, the subreddit. Final question, personally for you, what needs to happen in the world for you to be able to say, hey, you know what, the COVID nightmares behind us? What is it that you miss the most from pre-COVID times? You know, we're, I think this is a U.S. Tennessee-based perspective, but for us, the worst is over. It has been. I mean, we're starting to return back to the office, you know, most of the people who are going to get vaccinated uh, have access to vaccines now. Um, and I think it's just a return to normal, uh, a return to some level of, of normalcy. And so I think the worst is over for us. Um, unfortunately, that's not true in, in countries we've talked about prior to, to getting online in, in India and other places. But from an American Tennessee perspective, things are returning. And there just seems to be a vibrant amount of energy where all this pent up money and energy and 
desire is out there. So it could be the roaring 20s. I think we'll, we'll certainly see that. Lovely. That sounds fantastic. And hopefully happening over there is just a harbinger for what's about to come in the rest of the world, some semblance of normalcy. <laughs> but it's been so fantastic chatting with you, Craig, as always. And keep up the amazing work. Freight Waves is one of the first things I read in the morning. And I look forward to doing that tomorrow morning as well. Well, pretty. thank you so much. Lovely. That is it for today from us at the Vaccine Challenge. We continue to work towards our mission of bringing to light all of the supply chain and distribution challenges that can help speed up the distribution of the COVID-19 vaccines world over. If you're doing anything worthwhile in this space, have any suggestions of who you should talk to or any other ways that we can improve the podcast, please write to us at contactus at thevaccinechallenge.com. Until then, stay safe, stay responsible. This is us signing off from the Vaccine Challenge.